0: Hi, everyone. So today on Christmas Eve, I'm going to be doing a solo episode. I don't really feel like it's fair to put anyone in the spot of having to record with me today, Um, although we have some really exciting ones coming up. So, you know, it won't just be me. Uh, But I did notice that a lot of you liked this last time. So I thought I would uh, expound on some ideas I had had towards the end of my uh, game of the year playing. one of the games I played recently uh, to sort of round out my game of the year uh, consideration was the Messenger, which is um, uh, Devolver Digital put it out. Uh, it's a it's a really interesting game by, um, you know, I, I will actually uh, tell y- I will actually be honest and look it up right now to find out who put it out. Um, don't worry, I will be legitimate in telling you that yes i did not remember who put it out uh, sabotage sabotage put it out it's a lovely game the the basic premise of which is uh it, it's kind of like a ninja guiding clone um the uh the basic idea in the messenger is that you are a ninja who uh can time travel and uh the time traveling t- uh sort of takes the appearance of switching between 8-bit and 16-bit graphics. Um, it, it's kind of remarkable in a lot of ways because the not just the combat and the um, the images change and stuff, and especially if you played 8-bit and 16-bit games, this will mean a lot to you. It's sort of the difference between... Uh, well, I mean, the difference between a, an 8-bit and a 16-bit Ninja Platformer. Um but also the music changes as well. And so, like, especially if you were kind of brought up with those games, it will it will definitely hit a lot of nostalgia points for you. But it also is just a very, very well-balanced and designed game. Um, now, I had one weird moment with The Messenger. Uh, and, and oddly enough, this this episode is not about The Messenger, which I think as a whole, and I'll get to this a little bit more, is a is a v- wonderful game. I mean, absolutely, totally worth playing. Um, the only thing I would say about the gameplay is that it might be overshadowed by the music, but that's not the fault of the gameplay. It's the fault of the, uh, to, the, to the credit of, let's say, the composer who did an excellent, excellent job. Um, the, uh, the moment I had that was strange in The Messenger was there's a there's a bit in, in The Messenger where you can uh, bother this uh, shopkeeper uh, character and constantly try to look in this cabinet he has in the corner. Uh, and he gets mad at you and he tells you, stop, stop, stop. And, and, you know, like, if you keep doing it, he kind of goes into this bit. And eventually, this happens a couple of times, he'll say, like, if you keep doing it, I'm going to tell you a really boring story. It's about philosophy and you won't be able to skip it. And you keep going. And eventually he tells you the boring story You get an achievement for it, too. Um, the second time the boring story happened, it was a story from someone named Jordan the Wise, and it was a um, basically a uh, a bit on Jordan Peterson, um, which was just a um, was just a sort of account of Peterson's Jungian uh, philosophy, uh, which you know to anyone who's not familiar with Peterson or Jung, uh, kind of is a. Uh, <sighs> its archetypes, uh, archetypical uh, thinking, whereby um, the, uh, the the focus of the world is brought about, or the, the sort of psychology of the world, uh, which is sort of a global uh, uh, unconscious, is brought about by way of the stories and the images we all share. So uh, for Peterson, this, uh, this means that if there's a dragon in the story uh, guarding a, po- a bile of gold, it's not just a dragon. It's that humans have been scared of lizards forever because they represent a sort of otherness and uh, predatory co- quality. Um, the gold isn't gold. It's a sort of like um, uh, prosperity plus life plus um, you know proliferation into the future. Uh, fire is you know from the dragon's mouth could be something could be viewed as something like. Uh, you know, a mix between, um, a useful tool and also the, the element of the danger of progression, right? Uh, fire both, uh, gives us light and warmth and, uh, can kill us. Uh, and, then this is what it's about. Now for Peterson, this means that older tales really matter a lot. And, and for the messenger as well, right? I mean, the whole point of the messenger is telling a tale vis-a-vis, uh, the, you know, human unconscious, uh, of, um, you know, ninja games or something like that, right? Like the the images are supposed to mean more than the images mean. Um, I don't actually have a lot to say about that. I think that's kind of a glib observation um, and and maybe not the best thing to say about the messenger, although I think it's certainly what the messenger is going for. Um, I think that, you know, Yes, there's a, an element of playing into what we expect from video games going on in the messenger um, and what video games mean to us and playing on that kind of dual nostalgia um, uh, pleasure element. But um, I think what's weird about this Petersonian message, right, is that it kind of endorses loosely the next step Peterson takes, which is to say movies like Frozen or, um, uh, well, stick with Frozen, right? Um, Which doesn't rely on archetypes, which takes the sort of Ice Queen story and subverts it in, in a way just to make sort of a let's be honest, a kid's movie, um, he gets angry with this because the idea for him is that, uh, entertainment used to be edifying and not just educational. And, and the only edification that happens in Frozen is that we learn that girls, um, can sort of like, uh, have non-romantic relationships. And, and for Peterson, this is not, uh, I mean, this is, I don't want to, I don't want to be a jerk here. I, there's a lot to say about Peterson. I don't like Peterson particularly, Um, and certainly his social ideas and, uh, weird lobster ideas and stuff like that are, are, are not helpful, but, um, I do think there's, you know, it's better to handle these things seriously, as opposed to just glibly, especially when, uh, the other person has the veneer of academic, um, well, not just the veneer, he's a professor. So he has the, he has the, the sort of like, um, armament of academic, uh, credence. Uh, put it this way, when you, What Peterson would say is, when you change the archetypes of a story, you remove the deep edification that the story has. So it does no longer resonate through time. It simply is a reflection of the current moment. Now, there's Marxist elements of this as well, right? This is sort of what uh, Theodore Adorno says about the culture industry, right? It doesn't actually give us anything except a reflection back uh, upon ourselves that we, you know, clap about and enjoy and, and move on without learning anything. But the idea that edification has to be limited to old stories obviously is reactionary, um, which is to say, it responds to a fear that newer stories, such as Frozen, which has a sort of like, you know, even without going into the hashtag give Elsa a girlfriend stuff, um, it has a sort of um, homosocial quality to it insofar as the main relationship in that story that's brought about is not. A, uh, a story between a man and a woman who uh, fall in love, but a story between two sisters who find each other and reanimate a sort of sisterly bond, a, a kind of um, PG uh, goblin market. Uh, so I was very irritated to see the Peterson message there because there's something about that, right? The, the, the archetype then leading to a critique of modern art modern culture let's let's not even say art let's say modern culture that always ends up being reactionary like why are you changing our stories why are you changing the things that have made us human don't add women to this don't add etc to this you know black people weren't in rome that kind of uh, argument that we see all the time um and it it, it sort of worried me it made me think like well, is the messenger doing one of those like this is what video games used to be like more men in the video games more just like action no messages um except the message that we shouldn't have messages um and I was really irritated by that. It ruined the game for me in the moment. And then at the end of the game, there's another story that you can get about this kid who, you know, loved video games and, and didn't have a lot of friends, but really, you know, got invested in making art and doing drawings and was embarrassed by them. But a friend showed them, he showed them to a friend and eventually the friend uh, showed them to other friends and they brought him up out of this well, which is, of course, a symbol for depression and... You know They made The Messenger, and it's clearly a story about the person writing the game, and that was really touching. It's a really touching story. It sort of represents that kind of new archetypical element. It, it deals with depression, for instance, which is not something that you see in something like Beowulf, at least in the way that modern scholars would read it, or at least like, say, scholars of the 50s and 60s would read it, which is what Peterson's concerned about, but... Um, and it's this vague undercutting of the politics of the messenger until it's just kind of a slurry, right? There's nothing in the messenger that is political, particularly. It is a sort of anti-politics in that there's this conservative message in the middle of it, or relatively conservative message of, uh, the, you know, just like, let's get back to the Jungian archetypes of our, of our forefathers. Um, but there's also a very progressive sort of like, you know, this game is. Oh, you could even read it as this making this game was a version of self care. I saved myself by making this game. I mean, that's a very palatable message to a lot of people. Although you could quibble with the idea of labor being your self care, I certainly would. But that's a whole other uh, garden path we don't want to go down right now. Uh, and so, while I think the game was great, I really think the game was wonderful. I should absolutely, uh, you know, say I recommend you play it. I recommend you purchase it and enjoy it if you like platformers. It is a really fantastic platformer. It's easier than Celeste, if that's uh, something that's been holding you back from Celeste, uh, which I also think is a, um, I haven't said it on the show, but I think is a, a, a near perfect game. Um, but uh, The Messenger is a lovely game. It's, it's either in my top 10 or on the borderline of my top 10. It's a lovely 2018 uh, indie game in a year that was really, really good for indie gaming. Um, <clears throat> but no politics are really there. It's all messed up. It's 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 not messed up, but um, uh, mixed up. And any sort of political message that you would have seen in the game is lost entirely. Basically, in the end, you get the, you know, let's join forces, and when we give effort uh, together as a whole, we can accomplish anything sort of, uh, um, you know, the message we always see in video games, right? Um, this idea that, uh, you know, where we failed in the past was when we decided to try and do things on our own, and now we're doing them together, and it's and and we've we've beaten the bad guy. Um, so, including a right wing message or a sort of conservative message, let's let's like depoliticize it from a U.S. perspective now, or decenter it from a U.S. perspective. A conservative message in there, and then having no politics at the end, I think is really fascinating, right? There's this element of let's put this explicit message in here and then not follow through on it. And in many ways, this mirrors uh, what I think a lot of people in um, circles that are not mine would call SJW messages in video games. Uh, So uh, take the inclusion, or the perceived inclusion, of more female generals in uh, Total War Room 2. This created um, this massive, massive review bombing on the the game's website. I'm sorry, on Steam. Um, And... uh, this is an older game. It just had an update, and someone on Reddit or somewhere thought, "Hey, this—you know—this update now includes more women." Whereas it was actually a different kind of algorithm um, that was going on, that was producing more scenarios with women, but didn't actually increase the chances that you would get a woman general. It's all procedurally based. Um, but it was this massive review bombing for a game that had been out for years and hadn't changed substantially. Including the women in the game was not a political choice or in fact, if it was, well, let me take that back. Including women in a game about Roman history is a political choice insofar as representing women in that era, uh, rightly or wrongly, historically accurately or not, um, and and I believe it's more historically accurate than not, is, I mean, it's it's a political choice in this era, right? People are going, you know people are going to get mad at you. Um, However, it didn't impact the messaging of the game. It's a political choice, but... In terms of the message of the game or what the game is telling you, it's not much has changed. It's window dressing. Um, in Overwatch, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but when Overwatch first came out, the the hero shooter, Blizzard's hero shooter, um, there was a, a, a teaser image with Tracer, and uh, her 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 butt, her ass was was clearly sort of like detailed and defined, and it was clearly sort of a cheesecake picture, and Overwatch, uh, there was a pose in the game, that's right, and Overwatch took the pose out, and people lost their minds. Um, similarly, when Tracer was uh, revealed as gay, people lost their minds, right? Like, this is this is one of those things where Overwatch is seen as an SJW game as a result of these things, and ultimately, though, it's a hero shooter. It's exactly the same as any other hero shooter. It's better in many ways, because it's more optimized and, and tightly designed and, and really fun, but it's a hero shooter. I mean it's not there's a political choice being made by the people writing the games, but the politics do not change any sort of interpretation of the game. If you want to interpret the game as left, you would have to I don't understand how you would. I, I you could say that representation suggests that its makers are left, but the actual mechanics of the game don't change much at all. And this is really sort of the you know, to to, to coin a um kind of old hat sort of saying, this is the hire more prison guard, hire more women prison guards of gaming, right? You represent more people in the game or you sort of make a choice in the game that represents kind of politics. However, uh, what you actually produce is a game. The mechanics don't change. The actual content and and meat of the game doesn't change. Um, Conservative or liberal. However, what I've noticed is in, I've recently been playing this game, which I think is totally wonderful and I'll be looking forward to playing the sequel that just came out um, and may end up being my sort of uh, you know game of the year uh, after the fact uh, which is uh, Earth defense Force or commonly known as EDF um, I've been playing EDF 4.1 and the idea of EDF is that uh, you are this sort of um, a soldier you can play a ranger who's just like a typical soldier you can play a wing diver who's a flying soldier or a fencer who's a, a big sort of uh, armored soldier and then mostly if you're playing multiplayer you can play uh, uh, a, a character who uh, can call in tanks and, and airstrikes and stuff like that um, The game basically follows this paramilitary squad that's globally based so the countries aren't important. Um, it sort of it takes place in anywhere uh, earth. Uh, I guess it's supposed to be Japan but it's not particularly clear that it's Japan. Um, and you, as a member of the Global Earth Defense Force, are fighting off aliens, giant insects, robots, um, lizards, dragons show up, uh, big Godzilla monsters. It is a B-movie in, um, you know, in amber. It's wonderful. The The idea of it, right, is people have described it as the best 7 out of 10 game ever, and it's it's not a perfect game execution-wise. There are a lot of flaws in it. It's, it's too big, too ambitious, and too under-budgeted to be a perfect game. But it is really fun. Uh, you play as a, a character on the ground. You shoot things. You you know it's it's a it's a shooter. It's a third person sh- a military shooter. But you have to be careful. You have to use uh, squad tactics. You have to make sure that you are um, uh, keeping people, keeping other people alive so that uh, they can draw enemy fire. Uh, you have to prioritize who you're attacking. It's a very fun game. It's deep. It's a lot deeper than I expected when I started it. One of the things, though, outside of the gameplay, which I love, that I really find fascinating about uh, EDF is that it really, really effectively produces a jingoistic fervor for military destruction. Like, you feel really good. About all the destruction you're doing and all the the murder you're committing against ants and stuff like that. And while in games like um, Spec Ops: The Line or even games that are sort of celebratory about the killing, um, when they're set in modern times as EDF is, it becomes really hard to feel good about what you're doing unless it's so over the top that it becomes hard to ignore that the game is just like making you know stock terrorists out of some 2000 film, right? Um, you know, given what we know about the Iraq War, given what we know about the Forever War in Afghanistan and in the Middle East, it's very difficult to sort of portray you know the mass killing of anyone on Earth—Arabs or um, even if you know it's it's a sort of like oh the communists, the Chinese and the Koreans or the Russians are back and we have to kill them. Like there's, it's either you have the Nazis in World War Two who are effectively like bug monsters themselves. Or uh, you have bug monsters, and those are the only ways that you can feel very, very good about this kind of, um, you know, violent destruction. And so one of the things this made me ask was, why is it okay to feel good about violent destruction this way, right? Um, there's not any hesitation in EDF um, in, in feeling like this sort of, like, glee, right? Uh, and one of the chants they have is EDF, EDF, which sounds a ton like USA, USA. And offers like the same kind of intoxication as nationalism, but none of the caveats, right? It, it seems great. Um, and you would think that this kind of like easy slide into nationalism would be bad, but much like much in sort of like the inverse of how um, uh, the messenger and uh, well, let's stick with messenger. This is just in case of the inverse of how the messenger sort of presents its message explicitly, right? And then doesn't follow through it in the uh, mechanics, the message in EDF, such as it is, is only presented via the mechanics, right? You're only fighting uh, these monsters and feeling these ways mechanically. The actual story is thin as, you know, uh, tracing paper. It's 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 very, very thin. And even, like, the biggest fans of it will tell you that. Um, and in fact, as a result of this paper-thin story, as a result of there being no politics and just this sort of, like, mechanics of destruction and glee... Um, it actually provides you with sort of an open palette upon which to interpret what nationalism actually means, right? Especially for someone like me who, who has a hard time feeling a kind of nationalistic fervor, uh, because of sort of, a, 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 an acceptance of what that has brought in the past, um, EDF gives a sense of like a window into that, right? Um you can, of course, take the game uncritically. You don't have to think about, like, oh, why do I feel this way? Um, In which case, you just kind of feel great about the military and great about fighting things and blowing stuff up and using sniper rifles or whatever. Or you just enjoy the game. I mean, it doesn't have to be, like, a bad thing if you just like the game. Um, Or, and this is kind of where I diverge from that position, you can kind of uh, ask yourself why you're feeling the joy of nationalism in a game that produces no ideological stakes, right? Right. There's nothing going on here that would produce any kind of politics. Uh, Producing politics out of EDF is is a deeply, I don't know, confounding process. It it doesn't make any sense at all to kind of think about this game as political outside of it being a military shooter, which sort of implicitly is um, uh, political. There's not any factions. The aliens just want to destroy the earth and kill humans. So it's it's a purely dog-eat-dog kind of like kill them or you get killed kind of thing. And they say this explicitly in the game, right? Um, In this way, though, like, I think actually the fact that it produces a feeling without the ideology to sort of, like, buck against, right, makes it a better leftist vehicle um, than a lot of games that we have. Like, uh, so Gone Home, for instance, right, is is always uh, uh, trotted out as as the ideal sort of leftist video game in some ways. Um, And I don't think it... I mean. Don't get me wrong, I think Gone Home is a, is a really smart and, and, and intelligent, uh, intelligently designed game in so many ways. Um, I like it, but it also produces an ideology that you can kind of like explicitly agree or disagree with. It kind of opens up this world of, you know, uh, the aesthetics are contingent on your commitment to or objection to uh, the sort of like gay relationship at the core of the game, right? Um, And that, I mean, that's not a problem. That's very interesting and and needed work. But what EDF does is basically gives you the absolute opposite, right? (laughs) It it produces no argument. And so when you feel these sort of like emotions that you feel uh, playing the game, like a kind of um, glee, a sort of like militaristic... um, uh, uh, joy you don't get to have the kind of easy uh, opposition to that uh, militarism that say uh, you might have if the game was I don't know um, well I, if it was spec off the line right like oh these pe- this is just these people's home like why are we doing this why, why are we committing these atrocities right um, you don't commit atrocities against giant bugs that's not really how it works um and so as a result you get this sort of moment where you can't reject the nationalism on its terms because there are no terms you simply have to engage and interrogate the feeling itself um and it's not to say that games shouldn't have arguments and not to say that like games should never take political sides but that there's a place for games like edf which make you think like oh wait nationalism is extremely intoxicating and in fact This feeling of being a a whole, a part of something, a, a, a cog in a machine that is producing this like massive and even destructive result, um, that it's intoxicating, that it is seductive, that it's something that, um, even you, the, the good leftist can, can fall into. Um, I think that's useful. Like, I think it's a very useful thing to be able to say like, yeah, okay, this is like, I have to understand that this is a feeling that is good on some level. It's, it's the kind of, it's the. It's the imperial, it's anti-imperialist version of, um, you know, Marxists having to admit that, okay, like, capitalists aren't all idiots. Like, it's it's a matter of, like, it's an ideology that produces effects. It's not an ideology that is just, like, totally silly or whatever like that. And, and you know, as long as you inform people of the correct way to think, they will think that way. Understanding that there's, like, a feeling at the core of imperialism that empowers people is troubling but it's important for any sort of like actual anti imperialist project. Um, in some ways, this is like, um, this keys into something that uh, Theodore Adorno says, and as well as um, uh, Frederick Jameson, that uh, cultural objects can often work as su- suggestive hypotheticals to produce critical thought. Um, this was always the problem with Adorno um, and, and Horkheimer when they wrote uh, Against the Culture Industry, which basically says, like, they said, like, you know, these, these products that are being put out by cultural, um, I don't know, these cultural products that are being produced, let's say. Uh, I don't. I hesitate to think that they would call them artists, but like basically all the postmodern stuff, um, all the stuff that was just for an audience to enjoy, to feel good about, but not to sort of like come up with critical ideas about. Their problem with that, as well as sort of Jameson's concern with postmodern pastiche, was that there was not a there there. It wasn't actually like an object that meant anything. It was just an object that, conveyed a feeling or conveyed an idea that you could agree with or disagree with and thereby sort of like cement your politics, but never really challenge any sort of like existential or a larger sort of like human question. And so one of the things that has been brought to the table with this recently has been, um, and I've mentioned on the podcast before, but Nicholas Brown's article, um, uh, the, uh, the work of art in the, in the age of its, uh, real subsumption under capital, um, argues that genre fiction is actually really good at um, sort of uh, subverting the the culture industry and the problem of pastiche and postmodernism, that it sort of doesn't produce anything except a way to feel good or a way to feel bad. It doesn't produce an argument. Um, Brown kind of asserts that genre fiction gives you everything you need in a kind of like, uh, I'm I'm doing disservice to his work here. You should go read the article, but um, it's available for free. You can find it. Um, But the idea is, it produces a sort of um, guideline for the story, right? Every sci-fi story, to take EDF, has a certain set of beats, right? There's, There's a number of beats that are necessary. There are a number of beats that you need in there. You need the sort of invasion element. You need the intensification of Um, the challenge, you need a sort of like final heroic stand, either with a tragic sacrifice or not. Um, And then you need a group of survivors willing to rebuild uh, with new hope. Um, Whatever you sneak in beyond that, right, is kind of bonus material. It can be bonus ideological, argumentative material. It can make a claim, um, even as it is a cultural object for sale. And EDF, I think, in some ways, is making that claim, even if it doesn't intend to, right? There is a sense of just pure patriotism that I think most people, well, a lot of people wouldn't feel except that you're fighting bugs and everyone in the world is fighting bugs. It's it's human patriotism, which is a thing that does not exist. Um, but human patriotism and nationalism, I think, we could argue, would almost be as dangerous in some ways as um, national nationalism. <laughs> and so, this is the question that EDF sort of forces you to pose, and I find it fascinating and useful that it does so. Um, And actually, that insertion of the political right is what serves to produce political reading. Um, And just as like sort of last moment here, this is why in many ways you can't say, you know, you're adding politics where there aren't any, um, and what people mean when they say the personal is the political, right? Uh, These phrases get twisted by especially people on the right, but also people on the left in, and misunderstood. And the idea isn't that like what I think is happening in this game is real because the personal is the political, or I'm trying to insert things into this game and ruin it uh, as like a game because I'm, I have a political uh, bias or whatever. The idea is that everything that we consume and uh, put together has some sort of politics, either Implicit in its creation or implicit in its execution. Um, whether or not those politics are effectively or desirably put put across, uh, whether or not we agree or disagree with them, is crucially important to our understanding. In life, politics get added in a kind of obvious message way, right? Um, you know, uh, Harley-Davidson uh gets mad at the president because of the uh boycotts or i'm sorry because of the uh i jumped the gun there because of the tariffs and people boycott harley davidson or burn their harvey harley davidsons or sell them or whatever right um uh, uh indeed uh advertises on Sean hannity and uh we say well we're not going to use indeed anymore right it, it's it's blunt force politics in life are very blunt force it's obvious what the message is where it's coming from and why it's It's being said. it's, it's just how we do politics, particularly from an American sense. Um, in art, however, politics live in sort of unexpressed state, uh, spaces often. And like I said, they don't have to. Politics can be direct in video games too, and art and literature, whatever, and film. Um, we've all seen 2005's Crash, I'm sure, uh, that could not be more obvious in that film, what the politics of the film are. Um, but I would also say that Crash is a fairly um, uninspiring and unsuccessful film about cosmopolitanism that doesn't really work. I'm not talking Cronenberg's Crash, um, which is not about those things, but um, <laughs> or, or is in a totally different way. Uh, but art can also live in these unexpressed spaces, what Louis Althusser would call aporia. Um, and while a leftist account of video games is fraught at times, given sort of like the history of the genre, the, people, uh, the history of the people who play the genre, the sort of violence of video games themselves, There's something in the way that the player takes on the game as a sort of embodiment, right? Like you are in the game. You're living that position and feeling the feelings that that position gives you. And it often allows for unexpected political takeaways as part of that embodiment. And I think in this way, the messenger doesn't really give us politics outside of its one statement. It is in many ways apolitical um, in, in execution, whereas EDF is deeply political in execution without ever telling one bit of a story or a political uh claim so um merry christmas if you celebrate happy holidays if you don't and um and and you know happy winter or new year etc etc um uh we'll be uh working through the giveaway uh prizes for the uh november patreon giveaway so uh keep your ears open for that and sort of keep an eye on the on the twitter for that um Twitter is at, at no cartridge. My Twitter is at at Hagelbon. Um, uh, I didn't, uh I didn't start the show the way I usually do this time, so sort of get a different uh, different take. Um, and uh, the Patreon has changed to patreon.com backslash no cartridge. Uh, there's also a PayPal if you'd like to support us that way, paypal.me backslash no cartridge. Um, and uh, yeah, just follow us anywhere. There's a Discord server now. Um, just you can always ask me, I can give you an invite and um yeah happy new year uh we might get another episode out before then there'll be patron episodes of uh my sort of game of the year-esque thing keep keep an eye out for writing uh from me on that as well and um yeah thanks for all your support this year it's really been a wonderful year and hopefully we can go on to even bigger and better things next year